What's up, everyone? Today we have an awesome guest on the show, Frank Schaefer. And Frank is a New York Times bestselling author, artist, film director, screenwriter, and public speaker. And he's a son of the late theologian and author Francis Schaefer. And he's also appeared on Oprah, The Today Show, BBC News, and many other media outlets. So, Frank, it's good to have you on the show. Hey, thanks for talking to me, Josh. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, I, I first heard of you, you know, several years ago when I was back in Bible school. Uh, now, like I was more familiar with your father, though, Francis Schaefer, because I attended sure. uh, Biley, Biley University. Have you heard of that? Yes. In fact, <laughs> back in the day when I was in the evangelical world myself, we're talking 35 right. plus years ago, I actually was with dad one time when he was speaking at Biola. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't even know he spoke there. Okay. Yes, I believe he did. No, I'm pretty <laughs> sure. Yeah, pretty you sure know. We were, on a, we were on a California kind of thing, and he spoke at Biola and then up at Westmont and oh. a couple of other places. And I forget what year that might have been, but, you know, we're talking the mid yeah, to late 70s. That was back in the day. So, you know, and as you know, it's like Biola's a, like a hub for apologetics, you know, and so your dad was known for that. At least that's how I knew who he was. And you know, his name would come up here and there in our classes. But I remember when I first heard your name come up in class, and it was sort of shared in like a negative light. <laughs> so, you know, because like being that my school was uh, strictly evangelical, you know, one of my professors talked about how, you know, Frank Schaefer, the son of Francis Schaefer, has joined the Greek Orthodox Church. And they were like, oh, no, <laughs> you know, and it's yeah. like it's like you are lost in our eyes. And, and, and it's funny because like even though the majority of us had like no freaking clue what the Greek Orthodox Church believed, like I didn't know what it what you guys believed. you know, all we knew was that it was a bad thing, you know, at least. Yes. To well, hey, you know, <laughs> the, uh, when you said that the first time you heard about me in class, you figured it was a negative context I, I was going to say hey well, what was my wife doing there telling you about me but oh exactly right and uh, but that that's just like the perception that a lot of us young evangelicals had of the greek orthodox church you know it's like we were so naive of it but it's like we're told you know negative things about it and yeah uh, of course you know the the the, pro the thing you ran into very early there was that the you know, a bad sign in terms of the evangelical community is how it tries to protect itself by right. shutting down questioning, by either demonizing people before you can even see what they actually wrote or said themselves, or whole other groups or institutions. So, you know, let's not just talk about it, let's just have nothing to do with it and yeah. stick to kind. And of course, that doesn't speak very well, you know, when it comes to apologetics of being able to defend <laughs> your faith or argue exactly. it. Exactly. And I love and how you're just talking about like, you know, what would your wife say, you know? And so that that's, right. that's one of the things of like what my wife would tell me when I lived in the Philippines, you know, a lot of people would stay away from me because they were warned. They were warned about me, you know, stay away from Josh. They were warned about me in their meetings. And when I was actually dating my wife, um, actually, before I got with my wife, you know, I was asking her, you know, if, if you were to get with me, you better be ready. You know, and she said, Josh, but I, I know your heart. You know, yeah. so these people who say all these things about you doesn't matter because I know your heart. So I, I feel you on that, you know, and so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, the thing is that when, when it comes to these kind of spiritual journeys, obviously, when you change sides, I mean, you, 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 you essentially do something that scares people who are part of an establishment that only yeah. exists if everybody stays with the program. And so, <laughs> you know, I have experienced this over the years because not only did I go into the Greek Orthodox Church, if you think about the 30-year the trajectory since I've been in the Greek, Greek Orthodox Church now, you know, I'm writing books like my latest, which is Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, and with titles like that, 
you obviously scare the hell out of people. <laughs> they want to they find out, you know, what's going on. And at the same time, they're being warned off even reading from, from people who are so worried that they're thinking, gee, we don't even want to influence people to read this book, even in a negative way. So better yet, let's yeah. just ignore it and not talk about this guy at all. And that's really the bottom line with a lot of the inner inner workings of evangelicalism is essentially, you know, you're either part of it or or you are being attacked. But if, if you wander away, you know, their policy is, you know, less said, soonest mended. They just don't want to even know about it. Exactly. You know, and you know, I, I did read your book, you know, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God. And let me just say, like, I love it. You know, like, yeah, like I really love. I was even telling my friends yesterday. I, he was a former Biola student, and I was telling him to read your book. And you know, I love the humor. You know, the insights, right. and you know, for me, honestly, I love the I love the honesty. You know, like how raw well, maybe, you were. Maybe you maybe we should just get you a couple of cases, and you can give them out at the case <laughs> Biola. Oh, then, I don't know. Pre- presuming you. Within a half an hour, you can catch that plane back to the Philippines. <laughs> to get out. But it sounds good, you know. Yeah, you know, because I, I just love, you know, I was telling my friend from Biola yesterday, like it wasn't necessarily like the the philosophical stuff, you know, that you talk about. It's just your story. I, I thought that was so powerful. You know, you were so raw. You didn't hold back with your mistakes, you know, of how you were just growing up, you know, as a, as a young father. You know, so you basically just shared your story and, and your evolution of where you're at today or where you were at you know, at the time you wrote the book, because obviously things could change, you know, but I I would love for you to share your story with my listeners, you know, so like, what was life like for you growing up? And and how are things now? Well, you know, let's work backward from today. Okay, so right now, I'm, I'm 63 years old, I have three grown children, I'm a grandfather of five kids, five grandchildren. Two of them are grown grandchildren because if you get your your girlfriend pregnant when you're 17 and she's 18 and your first baby is born when you're 18, (laughs) that child has a a daughter when she's 22, you do the math and my oldest granddaughter who's now 22 years old, Amanda, who's studying sociology at the University of Helsinki in Europe, she's the age of the kids of my friends who all waited around until they were in their 40s to even think about having a child. So it's funny because I... Just generationally, my grandchildren are the ages of my friends' kids. And then when it comes to my youngest grandchildren, Lucy, Jack, and Nora, whose Mm -hmm. ages are 7, 5, and 16 months, they actually live across the street from me. And they Mm -hmm. are the children of my son, John, who was in the United States Marine Corps, fought twice in Afghanistan, once in Iraq, came back alive, went to the University of Chicago, Mm -hmm. married Mm -hmm. Becky, had these children, and now Jeannie and I, do childcare for them. So if people ask me, oh, you know, what do you do? And I guess, you know, if you're going to go speak at a college or something, they talk about you being a, a New York Times bestseller, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, kind of how you introduced me. But let's just start right now with the present. You know, I'm a stay-at-home grandfather who writes in the morning. I get up very early to write, do my painting as an artist, do some blogging, do some editorial stuff, does some media appearances. But really what I do is take care of these little kids, speaking about where our hearts are at. And my priority in life right now is really looking at what I want to pass on to them. And I think the bottom line for that is I want to pass on to them a belief in the intrinsic value of beauty, Hmm. period. That essentially not everything has to be for a bigger cause 
Not everything is about making money. Not everything is about being philosophically correct. Not everything is about education and jobs. Bottom line, unless you are chasing the intrinsic value of beauty and believe in it, then you are not going to have a beautiful life. And the purpose of life is life itself. It's not to do something with that life as if there's anything more important than life. So that's kind of where I start. Now, if you roll the clock back, I was brought up in the Brie Fellowship in Switzerland. I was born in 1952. And really, speaking of change, my change is not as dramatic as my parents' change. You know, when I was a little kid, I remember my mom and dad were strict fundamentalist evangelical Christians. You only played certain music on Sunday. There was no jazz or rock and roll. They, uh, you know, there was a strict dress code in the house, a lot of talk about modesty and all the rest of it. By the time I was 16, it was more usual to find my dad in an art museum giving a tour to students of the work of uh, 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 the artworks of the Italian Renaissance or doing a lecture on the lyrics from Bob Dylan's latest album than giving a Bible study. And a lot of people who associate him with the rise of the religious right because of what he got involved with later with his stand on abortion don't understand that if they had checked into Labrie Fellowship when I was 16, 17 years old in 1968, 69, 70, they would have thought they had arrived at a hippie commune with mm, some sort mm. of evangelical work. They never would have mistaken it for a Christian community in, in the way that, say, the evangelicals would think of a place like Gordon College or Wheaton or Biola or Westmont or any of these other institutions. It was really a free place where my father, for instance, was very welcoming to gay couples who came, didn't try to break them up, allowed them to share bedrooms. We're talking 68 here, buddy. This is not yeah. politically correct modern stuff. When kids came in who were taking drugs, nobody got kicked out. We had kids who had been on heroin. There were guys from the British rock and roll business coming through, asking questions about Christianity. So that was kind of phase two. And then phase three in his life, in the last six, seven years of his life, after he made a movie called How Should We Then Live? And then another movie called Whatever Happened to the Human Race, both of which I produced and directed with gospel films, and we raised millions of dollars to make. That's what put him on the big-time evangelical map. Before that, he was barely known to most evangelicals. And after that, because he took a stand on abortion, he got associated with the religious right. And all of a sudden, I found myself as his nepotistic sidekick, you know, I often say that only in North Korea or the British royal family do sons and daughters inherit <laughs> <laughs> the ministry the way they do in, in evangelical circles. But here I was in Jerry Falwell's borrowed jet at the birthplace of the moral majority in Lynchburg, speaking at his college, flying around the country, doing huge events. I was the keynote speaker at the Southern Baptist Convention one year to 23,000 pastors, all because my last name was Schaefer and so was my dad's. And then when my dad died in 84, I really had a change of mind. I looked at this subculture that hated movies and hated the music I liked and hated just about everybody I loved, whether it was gay friends or people who were into feminist ideals and these kinds of things. And I really couldn't see spending the rest of my life in this kind of cultural backwater that seemed to be against everything and was sort of xenophobic and paranoid on top of it. And I started questioning a lot of stuff. And therein started a journey where a lot of shook out that you already mentioned a little bit. Jeannie and I started going to a Greek Orthodox church in 1989. I got out of the Christian business altogether. I started making some feature films in Hollywood that were not terribly good, but they were paying work that was in the not in, a, in the Christian environment. And then I wrote a couple of novels, the first being Portofino, 
which got great mm. reviews and and found a lot of people who wanted to read them. And that kind of liberated me altogether from from you know what I'll call the God business. And after that, you know, I I kept writing books and I've written a lot of fiction and nonfiction books and some have been more successful than others. But bottom line was I had unhooked my my wagon entirely mm. from the evangelical subculture. And then in my mid fifties. Uh, a lot of people kept asking me, oh, you know, when are you going to write a memoir and so on? And then I wrote a big, thick book called Crazy for God, which became a bestseller and really told the story of my own journey, but also my family's journey, my dad's journey through the religious right and the rest of it. And and the, the, the email traffic that got kicked out of that, both from Christians and the new atheist movement and everybody else kept asking me questions about what I kind of believed. And so a snapshot of that journey is my new book. Why I'm an atheist who believes in God that you referred to and said you liked, and that really is an attempt to let people know: look, you know, um, instead of coming up with the right ideas about everything, let's start with the truth, and that is, life is a series of paradoxes, mm. and you mm. either embrace the paradox or go crazy. And it's not just about religion, whether there's a God or not; it's everything. It's parenthood, it's education, it's family, it's love. You know, uh, how do you define these things? And if you try to come up with a sort of an apologetics approach of arguing quote-unquote truth about everything and here's where we stand, it really doesn't work out terribly well because we all change our minds and we all learn more and we're very different people at one point in our life than we were at another. So that's kind of brings us up to the present and I and like I say, I take care of these grandchildren every day. I show them a lot of art. We make beautiful things together. We go places uh, and, and, and we listen to music and basically what I'm trying to give them is first of all unconditional love. Uh, my ambition is to be unconditionally trusted. And what I want them to learn from me is not a bunch of theology, but I want them to learn that A, they're loved, and B, that life can be beautiful if you believe in beauty rather than believe in being right all the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But instead chase beauty. And so, you know, my life has had a huge shift in emphasis, but the funny thing is it really ties back also to what my parents were doing in their ministry of Labrie, where they lived beautiful lives. They kept their door open to strangers. They took care of people other people rejected. They cared for the needy. They uh, tried to answer questions as best they could. They put a huge emphasis on art and creativity. We had musicians and artists and poets and writers coming through by the score who found my parents really understood them. And so you know, when it comes to the theology, yes, it's a long journey. When it comes to my own kind of aesthetic preferences, I think I'm very, very close to where my parents raised me to be and really went with that mm -hmm. aspect of who they were. So, you know, here I am uh, still on that journey and who knows where it mm -hmm. goes next, but that kind of is a long, long <laughs> thumbnail <laughs> sketch of it. Right, right, right. That, that essentially, re, 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 you know, Recap, put, puts in a capsule um, something like this memoir of mine, Crazy for God, and of course brings us up to where I'm writing this book, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God. Yeah. No, I, I love the whole emphasis on just like love and beauty and taking care of your family and stuff. And But, you know, I, I did find the title, you know, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God very intriguing for me personally, you know, and right. in the book, you know, you say that you hold two ideas about God like simultaneously, right? That he or she or it exists 
and doesn't exist. You know, but for me, I, I'm okay with it, right? But I could just imagine, you know, like the critics say, hey, you know, that's a contradiction, you know, <laughs> you know, aren't those two well, things of course it's a, exclusive? Of course, no. it's a contradiction. And the point is, it is a contradiction because <laughs> life is full of contradictions. Let me give you another one. And I think I talk about this in the book, but here's the truth. You and me are talking today. We're both biological machines. You're mm. made of carbon-based matter and water. So am I. There is no, there's nothing in our bodies that is thinking in itself. And yet the sum total of your parts look out at the world through what I'll call spiritual eyes. Okay, right. go figure. You, you're a biological machine looking at the world with a sense of meaning and purpose. Yeah, How do you figure that? Let me give you another example. I love my wife, Jeannie. We've been married 45 years. I don't know who that rotten kid was that got her pregnant. Uh, you know, what he wanted, I'm not sure, but I'm not that guy now. On the uh, other hand, we still have huge fights. We had one just the other day, actually. We fought on and off for three days about the stupidest stuff. And then it all resolved and everything was fine. But hey, if someone said to me, Frank, how can you write a book called Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God? That's illogical. I could write another book saying why I life, love my wife and hate her. Because... <laughs> Depending on the day, exactly. you know, sometimes yeah. love means you hate the person you're with a little less than you would <laughs> otherwise, and you, you, you basically, there's enough love left there to bring you back together, but it sure is impossible to come up with one description. You know, love right. sometimes is passionate sex, love other times is bringing your wife a cup of coffee in bed, and other times it's just when you walk out of the house, slam the door and drive off, and you're furious and you're never going to come back, you do come back. <laughs> yeah. But... All of those things are love. So you could write a book, Why I Love My Wife and Hate Her. You could write a book saying, Why I Adore My Children uh, and They Infuriate Me. You could write a book saying, Why I'm Loyal to America and Pray for Its Destruction. I mean, seriously, think about everything in your life you care about. And I'll try to come up with a one-size-fits-all definition. And I think the same is true of faith. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think I've said anything unusual. Why I'm an atheist who believes in God. You know, I remember talking to Billy Graham, the evangelist, when I was a kid, along with my dad, when he was my dad was dying of cancer in Mayo Clinic, and Billy was saying how much he feared death and didn't believe in heaven. This is mm. the same guy that has preached a whole right. lifetime. Now there'd be two ways to read that. You could say he's a hypocrite, but I don't think so. I think he was actually in a truthful moment, mm. and basically you could talk to. Uh, people who are, are, you know, pitching anything, whether it's supply side economics or, you know, carbon best oil is going to save the world or global warming. But, you know, in the still of the night, you know, whether it's whether you're in love with your wife or believe in God or believe in your job or love the country you're in, there is no such thing as unalloyed loyalty with no doubt. Yeah. And so I'm not just talking about doubt. I just go a step further and say, hey, let's be truthful. Not only is life a journey, including spirituality, no one is of one mind. And all these Bible verses to the contrary about being lukewarm and you got to stick with it, that's all very nice in terms of propaganda. Truth of the matter is, you know, Jesus is there on the cross saying, why have, why have you forsaken me? He's not there saying, I'm trusting in God's great plan for my life. And then I'm looking at my life and saying, well... Uh, you know, to be truthful about this, there are big chunks of time I'm an atheist, and there are other times I feel like a believer. And the difference between me now and then is I don't try to sort it all out yeah. and make it fit any more than I try to explain my relationship with my wife to a young married couple that says to me, hey, how have you guys stayed married 45 years and you're good friends with all your children? How did you do that? 
And my answer to them would be, you know, one day, one hour, one decision at a time. There's no seminar or book you can read that's going to give you the answer. It's, it's a series of millions of small choices made day by day. That's yeah. the truth yeah. of how life is. Forget theology and philosophy. And one of my arguments with philosophy and theology is they discuss these subjects in a vacuum as if they're not part of real life. Mm. Well, in real life, it's never either or. Give me a break. It's yeah. always both and a mixture and you learn and you think you've made your mind up and then you realize it was all bullshit and you move on from that. <laughs> yeah. That's that's how life actually yeah. is. We all know it. So, yeah. you know, I don't think I'm saying anything unusual, but the title was chosen deliberately to provoke a discussion. And I guess finally what I'd say about the title, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, it's an anti-labeling title. Yeah. I mean, look, Joshua, I've never met somebody gay or straight or bisexual or 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 black or white or Jewish or Christian. I've only met human beings who are conflicted about every aspect of their personality, their body, their life, their history, their genetic makeup, their background, just like I am. Yeah. So all these neat labels, oh, he's transsexual. No, he's not transsexual. That may be an aspect of his or her personality. Sure. But that's a that's a full human being with hopes and dreams and fears and and prejudices just like you and me and they're going to change their minds as they go on about all sorts of things. So yeah. I just don't buy these shorthand labels. Oh, for and sure. I wrote for a book sure. trying to blow that concept out of the water, beginning with the very title. So I love it when people email me and we say, "You can't be an atheist to be God." You know, my answer to them is is, "Hey, you know, you are." many things as well yeah. uh, and if I if 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 we're gonna go by labels then not only does all discussion end but it's a lie because nothing is as simple as the label yeah no for sure I mean I, I feel you on that you know what I'm saying like you know we're, we're different things on different days and we have all these like yeah. contradictions going on in our head yeah. and, you know and tension going on and but you know I want to know how how did this like bring healing into your life though so so I feel you right so I'm just like asking you questions that I think my sure, audience sure, asks but it. like like how I mean but doesn't certainty like give people hope you know what I'm saying like okay so there's an I'd put it the other way around I I I'd put it this way I think certainty is an addiction I mean okay. seriously I think we change our brains. I mean, neuroscience these days with scans and everything shows that, for instance, music grows children's brains differently than kids who are deprived of music, et cetera, et cetera. We know this. And I think that an addictive personality manifests itself in various ways. And I think the kind of people who wind up at Biola studying apologetics and really think they're going to get anywhere with it, you know, when they look back when they're 60 years old, my age, they're going to realize that they were sold a bill of goods of certainty addiction. That really <laughs> doesn't work out. So, you know, I think that, uh, you know, Hugh Hefner sits there in the Playboy Mansion trying to have sex with 18-year-old twins and he's pushing 80, late 80s. Well, good luck. I mean, keep doing that. But it, but your certainty addiction of thinking what you need is, is young flesh your whole life to have sex with. Yeah doesn't build the sort of relationship that I treasure with my wife, right. which right. is built on fights and resolutions and getting old together and a, and a real life. And I'd say the same about theological certainty addiction. If you're going to latch on to the sort of Jesus saves paradigm and think that's going to solve all your problems and somehow from then on, eventually what you have to do is just shut your brain down and turn into uh, a real fanatic to right. maintain it, which I think is one reason the religious right and the right wing fundamentalist movement is so 
opposite of everything Christ taught and is diametrically ugly so much of the time, precisely because they can't afford to open their mind to the real possibility that the whole thing is bullshit. Right. And so they don't have the, the common humility of questioning themselves that if you look at a marriage, for instance, or, chil or child raising, you know, the parents that do well are the ones that turn around to their kids once in a while and apologize and say, I learned something, I was wrong, and ask for some forgiveness. You know, the assholes out there who are fathers and mothers are always the people who are sure they're right about everything. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, or, or I'll put it another way. Nobody ever blew up a mosque or an abortion clinic or ran their plane into the World Trade Center after yelling, hey, but I could be wrong. Yeah. And think about that. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, who would you rather be on a desert island with or more to the point? You know, do you want to become the kind of person who you'd want to be on a desert island with? And if you're a certainty addict with all the answers, you're exactly the kind of person most of us dread sitting next to on an airplane. Right. <laughs> exactly. You know, so, so how does this all play out in your life, right? So practically speaking, you mentioned, you know, some days you believe certain things and on other days you believe other different things, you know. So, so you mentioned like prayer in your book, you know, sometimes. It yeah, but let me, let, let me just days. back off a second. Okay. You know, I don't think belief is where anything happens in anywhere in life, religion okay. or otherwise. Who cares what you say you believe? What matters is who you are. Okay. And, and it's the same with parenthood. I mean, who, give, who gives a crap about what your theory of parenthood is if you're slapping your kids silly or walking out on your children and not paying child support? Right. You know, and if you, if you want to talk Christian here for a minute, I mean, look at the teachings of Jesus to the Samaritan woman at the well. He says to her, she says to him, what are you talking to me for? I'm a Samaritan. We hate each other and you're a Jew. And plus he's a male and she's a female unattended in the Middle East. I mean, this is the Middle East 2,000 years ago. Yeah. He says, none of that matters. Gender doesn't matter. Religion doesn't matter. Day is coming when, you know, when, when uh, what God wants is not correct theology or where you worship or what church you belong to, but it's in spirit and truth. Right. Well, you know, what is the truth? The bottom line of all truth is, is who you are mm -hmm. and what you do, not what you say. So what I don't understand about evangelicals is they treat theology like a magic bullet. If you say the right words, you're in. Jesus is always saying, I don't give a crap what you say. It's who you are. And if you look at the way Jesus parses the gospel all the time, they're always coming to him saying, but the law says what you got to yeah. believe is this. And he says, I don't care about the law. Here's what the law says, but then there's this operative word of his, and it's an important big word. He says, but here's what I'm telling you. Right. So, you know, he would have made a very bad, Jesus would have made a very bad evangelical because Jesus basically says, I don't care what the Bible says you're supposed to believe. I'm telling you what you've got to do, who you've got to be. And all I know is that testing that idea in real life you get a whole different result than if your theory is correct. So how many jerks do we know who theo theologically are correct? How many elders and how many yeah. churches are cracked fathers? How many, yeah. how many mothers have broken their kids' backs with one too many Bible study or a little pietistic saying? You know, how many churches are just a veneer of respectability and underneath it's all crap? Yeah. Yet, you yeah. know, at least in my experience, how many times have you known an atheist or an agnostic or a Jew or somebody from a different background or a different denomination who doesn't have all the fancy words and the theology right, but treats you like a human being? Sure. So yeah. when, I, when I look at my whole, you know, this whole parameter here, once again, I don't think this is a departure mm -hmm. from Christian teaching. I think it's an affirmation of it to say 
correct belief is not the point. And let's let's look at something else. If you're if salvation depends on correct belief and sincerity, how do you know you're sincere enough? And if everybody did, why do all those people keep going forward at evangelistic rallies, having already done it a dozen times? Sure. Secondly, uh, you know, in their quote unquote recommitment to Christ that Billy Graham always asks for, which just seems like insane nonsense, as if Jesus yeah. is keeping a list or something. And then, then uh, if sincerity isn't it, then how about correct belief? Look, I don't know anything. I mean, I basically know enough to buy a washing machine. In other words, minor household appliances. But that's it. How do sure. we know yeah. anything? We don't. Mm. We, we go by trial and error. And yet, so how do we look for whether we're living a life that we should be living? And I know this sounds a little bit like Oprah Winfrey and so forth and so <laughs> on. But I'll put, I'll put it to you honestly in terms of this time of life as a grandfather. Yeah. You know, I, I don't look in the mirror of the Bible for correct teaching. What I look for is what I see in the eyes of the people who know me best, the children I take care of. Do I see trust, love, and an absence of fear and happiness there? That tells me a lot more about my spiritual life than a theological laundry list that I'm going to sign my name to. And I look back on the days when I was a Calvinist Christian young father jerk slapping my daughter at an 18, 19-year-old father who knew nothing. I had correct theology. In fact, I believed I should be the head of the home, discipline my children, yeah. tell my wife what to do, because it was all in the Bible, and that's what I'd been taught, <laughs> blah, 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 and it resulted in me being a royal asshole. <laughs> right, so right, right. now, who would you rather be on an island with, a guy who believed all that shit, yeah. or somebody who said, you know, I don't know, but I do know this, that um, when I see unconditional love and trust in the eyes of a grandchild, that tells me more about who I am than matching my beliefs up to a list. Right, right. No, no, I, for sure. I mean, but obviously, though, beliefs do matter, though, right? So, like, even oh, though beliefs matter yeah. because our ideas, our ideas inform us. Yeah. And I've been expressing a belief right here, and that is, yeah. of course, it's a belief that you embrace paradox, that you unhook yeah. yourself addiction of certainty these are beliefs too but sure. there are beliefs that are more or less poisonous exactly to the yeah. people around us it isn't that you're saying oh i don't believe anything of course you believe things but you know embracing paradox is another kind of a belief but i think it's less about belief than actually trying to have our experience of the world match sure. what's actually out there sure. and and you know there's this idea in ancient theology that i talk about a little bit in my book, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, I mention it there, and I've gone into it in other places in more depth, and that is this concept of apathetic theology, or the theology right, right. of unknowing, where you don't try to describe the character of God, you sense God's presence through his energies, not through what you say about God or the theology. And so, you know, an example of that would be seeing the goodness of God in creation. An example of that would be seeing the forgiveness of God in the experience of forgiveness from your wife or your children, yeah. whatever it may be. So for me, it's just that we're looking for these beliefs in the wrong places where if you experience the energies of God in your actual life and in your prayer life and so forth and so on, it's a completely different thing than coming up with a theological list that you then go study apologetics so you can defend it. Right, uh, right, right. Somehow this is an aggressive sort of campaign of getting other people to believe right, right. as if that's what anybody's judged on. Exactly. No, and that, that's one of the reasons why I liked your book so much, because you, you just shown how you haven't figured it all out. You know, that, right. that it, things could be kind of confusing. But, you know, your beliefs did change in the sense of, you know, who cares about all these, 
you know, theological beliefs that the, the evangelical church said, this is what you need to believe or else blah, blah, blah. You're going to go to hell or you're not right. saved or whatever. So, you know, your beliefs change to like, you know, uh, the importance of your family, you know, looking into, you know, their, their eyes and just knowing that you're loved or something like that or taking right. care of your grandchildren. Um, you know, because sometimes just as I was talking to my buddies yesterday, it's like, you know, we studied all this theology for so many years and you can still like, you know, act like an ass, you know, and stuff like right. it, it doesn't even matter, you know, so I'm just just thinking about how like so much has changed for my life on how I was always trying to get, you know, cross my T's and dot the I's, just making sure everything's perfect, just to make sure that I'm on the right track. And, and that's why I, I was just sharing your book to my friend yesterday and how maybe those things aren't as you know important as we thought that they were. You know, yes. and that life is a journey and some things are mysterious for us. And there are other things that are more important instead of trying to figure out, you know, these these certain doctors like who cares about predestination, you know. And, and, and so that's one of the things I love about your book is just focusing on like like now. And I think you even share stories about like when you were mowing the lawn and something like that or talking about right. your grandchild. And and that's what I really love. Um, you know, so so, you know, you, you mentioned also that you're an artist, which is really cool. I've seen some of your works on, on Facebook. So if you guys yep. haven't seen it, you post your paintings website. once in a while? Oh, okay. Yeah, com. if you want to go look at my spring show right now and some other things. And it, it isn't choosing one or the other. It's just, you know, this is a whole a whole life. And I, I painted when I was younger and then I left that to get into the evangelical thing regretfully but came back to it about 10 years ago and have been painting. And then for the last two or three years, I've been showing some of the work and, okay. and, uh, and selling it on frankshaferart.com. Yeah. And it's great. I mean, it's wonderful to be able to reach out through the internet and, and, nice. and meet people who are interested in your work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you mentioned in your book that, you know, as a painter, that you feel like you're connected to something bigger than yourself, like whenever you paint, but you know, would you call that experience God, you know, cause like how would you, yes, I would. And, you know, okay. I was watching an interview yesterday, actually, with a fantastic French classical pianist by the name of Hélène Grimaud. She's really great. And uh, this interview was being conducted by Deutsche Grammophon Records. I think she's just released a whole series of recordings of Brahms piano concertos, and she's a big Brahms aficionado. Somebody asked her about Bach, and she was saying, well, you know, Bach is really the beginning of everything for me, and if there's anything in my life that points to something bigger than us out there somewhere, call it God if you want, it would be when I channel his music. Now, you know, art has a way of doing that to people. So I'm not unique in that sense, but I must say, uh, you know, the experience of painting and, and say growing some flowers in my garden uh, my that I've planted with my grandchildren as bulbs in the autumn and then picking a few and dragging them into my studio and painting them in the spring, that kind of cycle of life is for me where I experience a sense of spirituality truth and beauty that i don't find ever in terms of theology okay never mm. so so you basically find meaning in your just in your existence like is it something that we create or we no, discover? I, I, look i just i just I'll, I'll put it in a different way you know uh i think theology and apologetics and evangelicals think that the proper response to god is hey you know, explain everything so I can explain it. Yeah. How, how about cut to the chase and just say thank you? Exactly. I mean, to yes. me, that's that to me is where my own spirituality really means something. It's the sense of the desire to express gratitude. Yeah. So when okay. I get up in the morning and I pray for my family, for Jeannie, Jessica, Francis, and John, Amanda, Ben, Donnie, Lucy, Jack, Nora, and Becky. 
you know, my, that prayer is not only for their well-being. I am listing what is close to me that I am thankful for, mm. you know, in the same way that when I look out at the view out of my window at the marsh I'm looking at right now on the, on the Merrimack River in Massachusetts, yeah. I'm not sitting here thinking that the only response is evolutionary psychology to figure my brain out or molecular biology to figure the marsh out or physics to figure out what sunlight is. Those are good questions. Sure. But the first thing I feel is just gratitude for the light that's going through my eyes into my brain that is forming a picture of what's around me and what a great ability to be able to see that and what a pleasure and a joy this is. So again, I, I come back to what I've been talking about, and that is if we're not pursuing the intrinsic worth of beauty, then basically we're telling God, if there is a God, hey, shove it. We don't care about the creation here. What we want to do is get our answers right, because really we're just pain in the ass teachers, pets, who want to put up our hand first and, and, and always get an A on the test. Well, if that's what spirituality is, you can keep it. Oh, for sure. For sure. No, and that, that's what, why I liked your book so much, because just you talking about beauty and, and love. And, and to me, that, that's been like my, my evolution of just, as you know, since I came from Biola, I, I don't want to judge everyone was just like me, but I just got so caught up in theology where just things could just end up being so dry for me. You right. know, instead of, for, you know, realizing just the simple things in life about like my family and love and, and beauty and stuff like that. And so, you know, um, I, I'd like to get to this question. You know, why, why did you join the Greek Orthodox Church? You know, do you still go to church? Yeah, absolutely. I'm there every Sunday with my oh. four, with three of my five grandchildren. Um, I take them every Sunday. You know, there, of course, reasons shift. Back in the day, part of it was that, you know, I was brought up in a church and I missed that, but I was done with the evangelical approach, and so I really like ancient liturgy in the same way that I prefer Shakespeare a lot of times to modern plays. It's a matter of taste, but I think the big issue for me is is that the the approach of liturgical mystery holds up better than a bunch of theological sermon-based teachings. You know, if I want another sermon, I'll go to a college and listen to lectures, but what I prefer yeah. is a, a, a liturgical practice which is both beautiful and changeless so that you can find a quiet space, as it were, to really get in touch with something bigger than yourself and to have a community, but not in the sense of making everybody think the right thing, but really in participating together. So for me, you know, church is going to liturgy, but it's also doing dishes at midnight after the food festival, which is our fundraising event, mm -hmm. and sharing that with the rest of the community. It's having a place to take my grandchildren where people watch them grow up and know them and love them. There's a lot more than theology involved. So it's not why do you go to church as in what do you believe? It's why do you go to church for the same reason you could say, well, why have you stayed in the same house for 35 years? Because I've worked here. I know my neighbors. Mm -hmm. uh, I planted things in the, I know where everything's growing. There are trees that are now 50 feet tall that I planted, etc. It's a whole life pattern. And, and for me, I love the liturgical life of the Orthodox Church. It's not something based in American Christianity. It's ancient. It's universal. It ties into some of the most ancient practices of Judaism as well. I just feel much more at home there than, you know, in the kind of church of what's happening now, sure. which I just got royally sick of, and, and I'm done with that. <laughs> I mean, so I, I get that. So, But, but I'm not know. telling anybody else they ought to do that sure, or you know, sure. they're lost if they don't. It or just, it's just something better. that you, you like. You know, I'm just giving you my personal reasons. Yeah. Like, it's like, yeah, so I mean, but initially, though, it was more of like, 
like a rebellion, right? Like, because he just wanted to get away from evangelism. I don't think it's a rebellion. It was okay. more of a hunger, a hunger for something more than 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 what evangelicalism offered you. Yeah, politicized right wing evangelicalism, and yet, you know, I still had that spiritual hunger. I wanted to be part of a spiritual community, and so I just happened to start going to an Orthodox church and found myself very happy there. I mean, for for one thing, they had no knowledge of the world from which I came, so I didn't have to continuously be kind of rehashing that. Okay. So I know you enjoy, like, the liturgical stuff, but you're obviously, like, hearing messages there, you know. Um, yeah, but I mean, they're very brief. They're based on the gospel yeah. reading. I mean, there's a lectionary. Every the, the go All four gospels are read in their entirety in small passages through the year, and the, the priest always talks for 5, 10, 15 minutes about the passage. But the main service, the hour-and-a-half liturgy, is in the passages of the scripture being read, the ancient prayers of the church, the chanting, the singing, the presentation of the, the Eucharist. You know, this is stuff that would be familiar to anybody who had studied any church history. Sure, sure. Okay. Um, you, know, I, you know, I loved how you talked about your wife in the book. You know, she seems like an awesome person. Uh, she is an awesome person. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to meet you guys one day, you know, face to face. You know, in fact, like when I was reading your book, uh, just when you were talking about your wife, it actually got to me like a lot. And, you know, when my wife woke up, she saw me reading your book and I actually put my book down and I just gave her a big hug. and just started to appreciate her. I mean, that's how much your, your book affected me. And well, I'm you know, happy to hear yeah. that. That's the best thing you've said all day. Uh, thanks. You know, and, and you know, I, I know your, your marriage hasn't been perfect. Obviously, whose marriage is perfect. But, you know, you two had something real. You know, there, there was pain, but there was also genuine love, you know, however we define that, you know. But how has your wife uh, reacted to your, your evolution of like, you know, just things changing for you? You know, is she on board? Listen, with you your... know, we, look, I, like I say, I got her pregnant when we were 17 and 18. We were together since we were 16 and 17. We are like kids who grew up together. We're joined at the hip. There's no mm -hmm. daylight at all. I mean, one of the reasons our fights are so terrible when we do fight is we know each other well enough to know exactly where the juggler vein is and we can go for it at the flip of a switch. That's the downside to a long relationship. The great upside is that we really have tracked and grown together. So that this crazy journey, you know, and it's nothing to do with a technique or a method or that we're good or special people. It is to do with the fact that we were just very fortunate in that, you know, when I married this beautiful San Francisco hippie princess who happened to stagger into my parents' <laughs> ministry, I didn't know who she was and she didn't know who I was. We were just boyfriend and girlfriend. But it turns out that as life had gone, gone on, you know, I'm lucky because my wife is a very serious, dedicated person, but also really wonderfully, uh, you know, really wonderful person with not just a sense of humor, but loves her sexuality and enjoys, you know, being with me. And we both love the same things. And, uh, you know, our idea of a great time is no big fancy thing. It's just a glass of wine in the kitchen while we're cooking and taking care of our children and then our grandchildren and having a good sex life. You know, she's yeah. a real good basic person. But then on the other hand, she'll read a book and tell me what's interesting about it. And so, you know, we've been tracking on that as well. And when it came to all my twists and turns, it isn't that she's kind of followed along. She's taken her own path. But we've wound up very much of the same mind on a lot of things. We're a real team. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. Luck. I, love I mean, that. we're just lucky that that's how it worked out. Because who who knew who these kids were? Yeah, 
No, that's cool because, you know, like even yesterday I, w- I met up with two people. We were both talking about the relationships. One was married. One was ending a relationship. And, and I was just telling them about how my own, you know, marriage has been. And, and you know, people look up to us for some reason. But I, I tell them about how, you know, we fight. You know, we even had a fight just a while ago. And it's like it, yeah. it gets ugly sometimes. And then people don't see this side of me. You know, in my Absolutely. obviously in my public speaking, they don't see this side. But even though we have these big fights, it's like it's that it's that love of just knowing that we're gonna reconcile again because we just love each other, not because the Bible right. says, but we just love each other. You know, yeah, and, that's and I, right. And that's I just, just love that about how your book you just you were able to show and, and just the humanity of all of us. You know that that right. a lot of authors wouldn't dare say. <laughs> you know, and which is why I, I admire you know your your courage for doing that. Um, you know, but what what's next for you though? You know, are you working? Well, on I, anything? I'm working on another. I'm I'm painting a series of paintings right now oh, that okay. I'm actually collaborating with with my granddaughter Lucy. She's she's copying some of the iconography in the church in a very child's hand, and then I'm I'm taking her basic drawings and turning it into painting. That'll be an autumn oh, show. Nice. Okay. And then I'm also working on a new book, which is really about this idea of, of, of the intrinsic worth of beauty and family life as seen through the eyes of a grandfather. So I'm kind of going to that stage of my writing now where I'm folding some of those experiences awesome. uh, in, into a view of art and music and life and children and sex and all the rest of it. Nice. How, how old is Lucy now, by the way? Lucy's seven. Seven, okay. And, uh, seven, you know, and really lovely. And, and, of course, she lived in my house when she was born for two years before they moved out. And so she and I just bonded like crazy. I mean, she would nap in my arms. And we've spent hours and hours and hours every day of the week together since she was born. Awesome, beautiful. I pick her up at school every day. I make her her snack. She hangs <laughs> out in the afternoon. I read to her out loud. We, we do art together. You know, we're really good friends. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, because you mentioned her a lot in the book. So that's, that's pretty yeah, well, cool. She's my buddy. Oh, you know, you know how, how can my listeners keep in touch with you? What's your website again? Well, there's various ones. First of all, they can go to my Facebook page, Frank Schaefer, and they can, it's a, it's, it's sort of, I don't know what they call it, a fan page. Is that or a something. fan page? Okay. Yeah, yeah you just like that. that up. You're on. And by the way, I answer all my messages on that page. I don't mean just comments. I can't do with all those. But if anybody messages me on that page, I answer it. For sure, for sure. On my web, on my Facebook page, and then there's Frank Schaefer. Uh, um, okay, and that has your artwork too. Um, That's your and artwork. FrankSchaeferArt.com. Oh, okay. So FrankSchaefer.com. So FrankSchaefer.com, and Facebook, and then I have a Twitter thing too. So, so you're I everywhere. Answer. You're everywhere. Yeah, and and if you go to my Facebook page or my art page and you want to get in touch with me, my email is listed there. It's just FrankAschaefer at AOL.com, all one word, Frank A. Okay. Schaefer. And I answer my emails, you know, unless it's just too abusive, I'll mostly get back <laughs> to people. Right, right, right. And, and you recently did a talk for Google, right? Yes. Uh, okay. They have that Google has a sort of a ver- their own version of TED Talks called Talks right. at Google, and um, I did one for them at their Cambridge headquarters, and then they they nice. simultaneously they simulcast that to all their offices around the world. It's got it's on YouTube right now, and uh, again, you can go to my yeah. my um, Facebook page and click on it. I'll be posting the links, so don't worry about it. I'll make it easy for everybody. Thanks, you and know. if you send me a link to this interview, I'll post it on Facebook. Oh, for sure, for sure. So you guys check out his book, Why Men Atheists Who Believes in God, and check out his, his future works and his paintings that he already has. So, Frank, it's been a pleasure, man. You know, just thanks for being you and for just sharing your, your story and your heart, and thanks for being on the show. Joshua, my pleasure. For sure, for sure. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. 
That was such a dope interview. You know, I love Frank's honesty and where he's at on his journey. You know, just wanting to keep things simple and seeing how a lot of certain types of doctrines and philosophies uh, just seems unnecessary and can sometimes even be poisonous to our lives, which is why I love his emphasis on love and beauty. You know, so don't forget to purchase his book, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God. You can get it on Amazon as a paperback or even on Kindle. Also, if you're into audiobooks, remember I teamed up with Audible.com and you can choose from more than 180,000 audio titles from there. Now, that's a lot, right? And, and you can download any of them absolutely free with a free 30-day trial just so you can check them out. Just go to www.audibletrial.com slash flipside. Again, that's www.audibletrial.com slash flipside for any free audiobook of your choice. So go check that out. And if you enjoy this podcast, consider supporting me on something called Patreon. Remember, it's like a tip jar saying, you know, hey, Josh, we appreciate what you're doing and we'd love to keep this show going. And so, you know, any support would really mean a lot to me, guys. And as some of you know, my wife and I were moving back to the Philippines in a few months not visiting, moving. And so we're taking everything with us, including uh, the books I've written because we'll be selling them over there, you know, while we're in Asia. And uh, but while we're still here in California, and if you'd like to have a signed copy of my first book, so you thought you knew letting go of religion with me personalizing it to you with your name, uh, you can order it directly from me, you know, on my website and I'll have it shipped to your door. But keep in mind, this is only within the U.S., okay? It's only in America that I'm going to do this, uh, not out of the country because the shipping is going to be too much. So I'll be putting a link in the show notes of how you can order one book or even a bunch of them in case you want to buy some for your friends. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And I've been getting so many private messages and comments from people on Facebook who enjoy the show, uh, which is really encouraging. And if you could just do me a favor... Instead of thanking me just through emails or private messages, which I do appreciate, of course, I'll write a review and rate it on iTunes instead because that'll really help out the show when it comes to ranking so more people can discover it. And trust me, I read all of the reviews and sometimes they really get to me and inspire me to keep pumping out you know, more of these episodes for you guys. So if you can do that, and of course, please share this podcast with your friends. Alrighty, guys, once again, uh, thanks for listening. And I'll see you guys on the flip side. I'm out. Peace.